Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So, hi there. Thank you for downloading this episode. If you've listened to our last couple of Critical Value shows, you know we're doing something a little different right now. We're taking a look at how the pandemic will impact families and communities in critical ways. And our slant on this is that we've been keeping an eye squarely on what it means for the most vulnerable Americans. Today's episode focuses on people in prisons and jails, both the residents and the correction staff who work in these facilities. The U.S. has more than 2.3 million people confined in jails and prisons, and it's not like it's a static situation. Every year, 600,000 people enter prison gates and people go to jail 10.6 million times. Plus, there's hundreds of thousands of people who work in facilities, so this is a lot of people. And these institutions are at significant risk of coronavirus outbreaks. Now with a closer look at one of the most dangerous yet underreported aspects of this pandemic, the rapid spread of COVID-19 in prisons. This New York Times headline captures the dilemma, jails are petri dishes. Well, in a time of social distancing, packed prisons pose a risk for viral outbreaks. One example, Rikers Island Jail Complex in New York City. The New York Times reports the jail has more than 167 confirmed cases among inmates. To get a sense of how we should be thinking about managing the health and well-being of this vulnerable group, I spoke with a few experts. First up, Dr. Bree Williams. So I'm a physician and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where I direct a program called AMEND at UCSF. In Dr. Williams' world, there's something of a mantra that they use. People who are working at the intersection of health and the criminal justice system have been saying the same thing for years and years and years. Correctional health is public health. Correctional health is public health. So this is a pretty powerful frame to think about health. I think that a lot of us see this group of people who are incarcerated as separate, living way outside the boundaries of our day-to-day lives. But Dr. Williams is clear. We need to think about this differently. There's no separation in a pandemic between the patients who are in correctional systems and the patients who are in the community. We are all the same people. What happens in prisons and jails is going to profoundly affect what happens with this pandemic really nationwide. So they are us. That means that all the staff who work in jails and prisons, all the people who live in jails and prisons, and all the communities, all of our communities that surround the over 5,000 jails and prisons that exist in our nation, we're all connected. If we ignore the health and the well-being and the experience of the people who are living and working inside the walls of our prisons and jails, at this time, really at any time, but especially at this time, then we are risking a profound health threat to all of us. And why is it so important to think about these risks? Well, for one, outbreaks in prisons will cause strains upon our broader health systems. The patients in prisons and jails have to be factored into the local community hospital surge planning, like pandemic surge planning for populations of patients that they're going to be needing to extend hospital beds, ICU or intensive care unit beds, and ventilators and other forms of life support too. Because patients from prisons and jails will be transferred into local hospitals for the care of their serious diseases. 
And let's be clear, prisons and jails are at very high risk for rapid transmission of the disease. Dr. Williams says there are three main reasons for this. And the first is medical vulnerability. So this probably seems like a strange analogy, but you could think of prisons and jails sort of in the same way that you think of cruise ships, not because people are enjoying themselves on them, but because they are enriched with very medically vulnerable patients. So there are a lot of people of older age. There's more than 400,000 people over the age of 50 in prisons and jails across the nation. There's a lot of people who have chronic and serious medical conditions. And these people, just like on cruise ships or in other small kind of institutional living situations, they're eating, they're working, they're recreating, and they're living together in extremely close quarters in dorms. Sometimes people live in 10, 20, 30, 50, 90, 100, 200 person dorms, or in really small cells with two, three, or four people in them. These are the very attributes of environmental settings that translate into an increased risk of the spread of disease. That's why people are saying that prisons and jails are practically designed to spread disease like this. The second reason why there is likely to be accelerated transmission is that medical treatment capacity in prison is not at the same level that it is in the hospital. It is very common for people to have respiratory distress with COVID-19. And prisons and jails are at best able to treat just a limited number of people for a limited type of respiratory therapy. They can stabilize people if they don't have too many of them at once. And then they send them to the local hospital. And then the third reason why I anticipate that these are settings where we will accelerate transmission is that it's really important to recognize that prisons and jails are actually not isolated from our communities in the ways that many people think of them as isolated. They're certainly not isolated from a viral perspective. So unlike cruise ships, which actually are kind of isolated, prisons and jails are not actually sealed off from the outside world. And COVID-19 or any other virus is not going to respect the walls or bars of a prison. So hundreds of thousands of correctional officers and correctional healthcare workers are entering and exiting these facilities every single day. They return to their communities, to our communities at the ends of their shifts, where they bring back to their families and neighbors and communities any exposure that they've had while in prison. But then they similarly go back to work the next day and transmit any virus that they picked up in the community back into the prisons and jails. So you see the potential for virus transmission. And the thing is, people inside facilities, these institutions, they know this. And you can imagine how they're feeling. So Justin, when you ask me what are people feeling, you know, people are feeling fear, people are feeling apprehension, people are feeling anger, people are feeling desperation. That's Johnny Perez, director of U.S. prison programs for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. Johnny has a really unique sense of perspective and empathy as a prison reform advocate and as someone who was formerly incarcerated and served 13 years in prison. He says that these times are especially hard on people who are locked up now. And to give you some insight, I received, you know, a video sent from, it was actually on Facebook, from this gentleman who's currently incarcerated in Ohio. He has one year left. He is in a prison setting, so there are people there with more time than him, right? But he's also in a cell with three other people who all have COVID-19 symptoms, who are all coughing, who are all sweating. And he is saying, I'm sending this video out because I may not make it. And, and it made me cry because I know the powerlessness that he was experiencing. 
you know, but it also showed us the magnitude of how we're not prepared for this, right? And, and, that, and that because we're so stuck on this punishment paradigm, it doesn't give us a, a, an opportunity to explore remedies that really address, like, the, the care of people. And this young man, you know, he, in this video, he's saying, hey, I don't know what to do. They're leaving us here for dead. I've seen a nurse for like four days. The reality is that even in non-pandemic times, healthcare in prison and jails is usually less than ideal. And just thinking about the setup in prisons, like this concept of social distancing, well, that's basically impossible. Here's Bethany Young, a policy associate from Urban's Justice Policy Center. First thing, you know, we social distance is, you know, like the rule of the day. And in the prison, like you're in a congregate environment, you know, you work, learn, eat, sleep, recreation, all in the same physical setting alongside hundreds, sometimes thousands of other people in a physical structure that's typically not even not big enough on the best day to accommodate everyone who's there. So, you know, think of the capacity of most prisons, the occupancy far exceeds the capacity in a lot of these places. Some of the, the worst conditions for the spread of an infectious disease exists in a prison and, you know, the close quarters, poorly ventilated, scarcity of hygiene products and cleaning supplies. And Johnny agrees. Yeah, you know, so in an incarceration setting, and this is coming from, of course, you know, both my professional capacity now doing work across the country and also my direct experience. I mean, on, on the best day, right, you're still placed inside of a system that is highly crowded. You know, you have limited access to healthcare providers, you know, where you have little access to hygiene products, you know, and you're also placed in environments that are, that are unhygienic. In prisons and jails, people have limited access to just about everything, including the basics. People have limited access to soap in a number of different ways. Some facilities will give you one bar of soap a week if you cannot afford to buy your own soap. And then not everyone has the funds to buy soap in commissary. You know, added to the layer that if you, you know, that commissary is taken away from you if you have some type of restriction as a result of your behavior. Technically, they're not supposed to prevent you from buying any type of soap. But in practice, because you may not get a commissary seat or you may land in solitary where commissary seat doesn't come around and things like that. Folks have it, find it difficult to even purchase these items. And you think you're having trouble getting your hands on some Perel? Well, in prison, forget about it. Hand sanitizer is really critical for this conversation because hand sanitizer contains alcohol. And most hand sanitizers have about 60 to even 70% alcohol. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is contraband in almost every incarceration setting that I am aware of across this country. So now we're placed in a situation where hand sanitizer it, it highly decreases transmission of COVID-19, but also... This keeps regular you know, overall health in an unhealthy environment, but these folks do not have access to it. The challenge of managing the pandemic falls hard on correction staff, too. Here's Bethany. You think about staffing. The turnover for most correction staff is pretty high. So most places have more vacancies than is safe to have in a facility. So then you think about people being out sick or having to kind of self-quarantine if they feel sick. So you're having people understaffed. You know, prisons are a setting where you, it's not uncommon to hear mandatory overtime. You think about, you know, someone being having to stay for 12, 18 hours on a shift. So the response to COVID-19 in some facilities has been to put additional measures in place that restrict the use of common areas and to end in-person visits and cancel programs. And while the measures may be intended for public health reasons, Obviously, they can end up feeling especially punitive for people inside and limiting what little freedom they already had. 
you're dealing with a system that's understaffed, under-resourced, and then having to deal with these additional measures, you think about the risks physically health-wise thing, but then also the mental health component. So you have these men and women in these facilities, they can't go outside and play basketball. They can't, you know, sit and wreck and play cards with each other. They can't look forward to a visit with their kids or their parents or their, you know, significant other. All of the solace, any solace that can be found for, for some people in these facilities is no longer an option. Johnny says that the balance between trying to maintain health within prisons and eliminating those lifelines of human contact is a difficult line to walk. Now, we can have another conversation about how we can still have visitations and still protect people. Departments have been responding with canceling all visitations, canceling recreation, locking people inside of their cells for weeks at a time. I've seen, I've seen up to like two and three week lockdowns. We're seeing some type of social distancing, I guess. As you can imagine, in prison, family is a lifeline, and family is what keeps people sane. Family is what keeps people from even from committing any further harm while they're incarcerated, you know. And that has been taken away for for many people that are currently incarcerated right now, not only in the jail setting but also in the prison setting. Bethany notes that some facilities have tried to remedy this by adding new ways to stay connected to loved ones. There are a couple of states that have extended free access to video conferencing, given them a couple calls for free. They've reduced the price of other methods of communication. So in Tennessee, they waived fees for phone calls and video chats. Pennsylvania allowed five free video calls. Florida offered one free video call, two 15-minute phone calls, and kind of reduced the price of video calls beyond that for people to have a little bit more access to loved ones. And some places are thinking more openly about how to create a safe environment for everyone. Here's Dr. Williams. The North Dakota Department of Corrections right now has made a very good point of clarifying that their most important allies in this work are the people who are incarcerated in their prisons. And so they are doing absolutely everything that they can to make sure that they ask people who are incarcerated, how can we create a more calm environment? How can we answer your questions? How can we help you to understand what's happening? What ideas do you have about how we can improve, you know, social distancing without putting the entire prison or jail into lockdown where everybody has to be in their room all the time, all day, every day, and doesn't have access to being outside at all? And creating an environment where people want to come forward about their health issues is important too. When correctional departments respond punitively, they create an environment where people do not feel safe sharing what their symptoms are. And it's in the best interest of all correctional departments to have people who, are, who feel safe and willing to come forward with their symptoms because it decreases the, the level of transmission and it, it increases the likelihood of putting everyone in danger, both people that work there and people that live there. If I think that I'm going to go to solitary because I report a fever, then I'm not going to report a fever. And that, in turn, is going to allow me to infect other people, whether I know it or not. So we should not be responding to health concerns punitively, and I can't say that enough. Everyone I spoke to said that the biggest thing that can be done to reduce the risk of an outbreak is to actually lower the number of people in these facilities or decarcerate wherever possible. Here's Dr. Williams. And this is really the most important thing that we can do right now, because first of all, once you let people out of the prisons and jails, the people who uh, remain have more space 
so that they can practice more social distancing and perhaps even more sheltering in place. So how should we think about decarceration? She says that two groups rise to the top of the list who we should consider letting out. The first is the people who are extraordinarily high risk of getting seriously ill, requiring a hospital bed, an ICU bed, or ventilator or other life support systems if they get COVID-19. And those are really people who are older and or who have chronic diseases that have been found to be risk factors for developing serious illness. So COVID-19 is in many ways being called a geriatric emergency, geriatric meaning older patients. But Dr. Williams believes we can't end there. The second important population when we think about decarceration is absolutely everybody else. And the reason why is because if people can be identified who, for example, are within three months of release or within six months of release, have had a positive parole board review and are just waiting for somebody to sign off on their plan, you know, they have a place to go, they have a healthcare system and medications filled and ready for them. Those people, if we can get them out to a non-institutional living facility or even a halfway house that's able to not be overcrowded and has the capacity to allow its residents to practice social distancing and sheltering in place, then again, we have more space to treat the people left behind, including the people who are older or with serious or chronic illness in the prisons and jails who can't get out for whatever reason, who again, need to be able to shelter in place. And that's for people that are already in facilities. We should also be thinking about front-end efforts to prevent new people from entering jails and prisons during the pandemic wherever possible. Bethany says that jails, which are different from prisons and that they hold people before they've gone to trial and been adjudicated, are especially important to think about because there are a lot more people coming in and out. Trying to limit the number of new arrests, trying to do court proceedings in other ways or postpone them. So summons instead of arrest warrants, some places are vacating warrants completely to kind of avoid kind of that cycling through the the jail systems, as I'm sure you're imagining. Kind of an easy way to introduce an illness into a closed facility is to have new people keep coming in, right? So you're seeing in some places kind of the, the effort to stem that at the front end, but where that's not happening, if we are kind of still having intake, people are still being arrested and brought in on new charges, being kept somewhere separate and then being kept there for that 14-day period before being introduced into the jail or prison population. So those are a couple of the things. But I mean, jail is certainly a much riskier place in a time like this. Prison, of course, also. But in terms of the kind of the cycling in and out, that makes jails uniquely dangerous. In some ways, the pandemic may be a push for places to think more holistically about risk and whether all the people that are incarcerated really need to be there. It's funny what we can do when we feel like we have no choice do it and when we're truly forced to examine the dangerousness of people, huge quotation marks around dangerousness. You know, and we realize that many of the people who we thought were dangerous are actually ready to just come home. And even others who who we feel, you know, are not ready, quote unquote, there's still ways to, to be able to work with them to where we're able to care for them while still holding them accountable. In the end, it will be really important to learn from this time and contemplate how those lessons inform how we handle incarceration in the future. I think what's important in this moment is for people to look at how corrections is responding and how governors are responding and how individual lawmakers are responding and really take note of the next six months, right? 
because when this is all over and we continue doing the work that we do, right? We want to remember how these responses happened, how people reacted, right? What was different then than now? And if people are not dangerous to be, I mean, think about this, right? Like you're not dangerous enough to be released into the world during the during the world pandemic. Then that should literally make us question dangerousness across the board, you know? And, and I do hope that it continues. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, correctional health is public health. Our well-being is interconnected, coming together to take measures to protect the health and well-being of people who live and work in prisons is good for the public health, and we all benefit from that. Two, jails and prisons are ripe for rapid transmission of COVID-19. It's nearly impossible to social distance in crowded facilities where people have underlying health conditions or advanced age, which makes them vulnerable, and access to supplies is limited. These challenges bring into sharper focus the many issues that were already facing our correction system before the pandemic. And three, one immediate solution to minimize health risks is to think about how best to decarcerate, meaning release anyone and everyone who can be safely released and to prioritize geriatric patients in that process. So that's our show. Big thank you to Bree Williams, Johnny Perez, and Bethany Young. Bree and Johnny are both on the advisory board for the Prison Research and Innovation Initiative run by the Urban Institute. You can read more about that project on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. You can also email us your thoughts and reflections anytime to our email account, criticalvalue at urban.org. Thanks to all you Critical Value listeners that made it all the way to the end of this podcast without hitting fast forward. Thank you so much for that. And now that you're here, why not take a second to rate us up on iTunes and you can call it your one small good deed for the day. Big thank you to producers Kate Villarreal and Jacinth Jones and to Katie Robertson for all her help setting this episode up. And of course, thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our music is by Moby. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids at home who are now co-producers. Thank you, podcast listeners. We hope you tell all your friends that this podcast is the best podcast. Goodbye.